This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code IRISHTIMES at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Hello and good evening. Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club Live podcast with Louise O'Neill, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre here in Parnell Square in Dublin. My name's Laura Slattery, I'm a journalist with the Irish Times and I'm very pleased that the Irish Times book club title for the past month has been Louise O'Neill's novel Asking For It. This important book is the devastating story of 18-year-old Emma O'Donovan who was raped and then shamed in a small Irish town in a sequence of events that has some parallels to a number of real-life cases. Asking For It is Louise's second novel, and like her debut, Only Ever Yours, it is a young adult title with crossover appeal. Only Ever Yours, a feminist satire set in a dystopian world, won the inaugural bookseller YA Prize in March, while Louise was also named Newcomer of the Year at the 2014 Irish Book Awards. Joining me for a discussion about Louise's powerful writing and her exploration of rape culture in Asking For It, are my Irish Times colleagues, Sarka Hamilton and Sarah Gilmartin, and of course, the author herself, Louise O'Neill. Welcome all. Louise, I'd like to begin by asking you, what motivated you to write this book? Um, I think when I was finishing up writing um, Only Every Yours in August 2012, uh, there was uh, Todd Akin, a politician in the US, was running for Senate, and he was asked in an interview if there was any case um, in which he thought that abortion would be acceptable. So they asked him, you know, if a woman was raped, and he answered by saying that if it was a legitimate rape, that the body had ways of shutting down so that the woman didn't get pregnant. Anyway, um, and I just, I, I thought that was really interesting, and it, it sort of harked back to um, Whoopi, Bo- um, Whoopi Goldberg's comments when she was asked about the Roman Polanski case Um, And she, you know, when um, Roman Polanski, the famous director who was um, charged with raping a 13-year-old girl, and she said, well, you know, it wasn't rape-rape. And I think it just really stuck in my mind. And I I put it into um, Only Ever Yours, just something about, just a comment about, oh, it wasn't rape-rape. And it just felt like it was too important a subject to sort of shoehorn into the narrative like that. Like, you know... Um, with Only Ever Yours, there were so many issues that I wanted to deal with, but the story itself has to be compelling. Like, you don't want it to get, you know, the narrative to be loaded down with issues. So it was something that I was thinking about. And then two cases in the US, um, the Steubenville case um, and the Maryville case um, occurred and it's sort of in 2013. And in both of those cases, I think the similarities between the two were just uncanny. They were in very small, tightly knit communities um, in the States where... Um, you know, that were sort of struggling economically, but in which the local football team um, were heroes. And there was a party, too much to drink. Um, a young girl passed out um, and she was gang raped by members of the local football team. Photos were taken and circulated on social media. And I thought what was really interesting was not only, I suppose, the entitlement that those boys felt to that girl's body, that they didn't even think there was anything wrong with what they were doing, that they had no you know, sort of hesitation in posting those photos on social media. There was no sense that they would ever, um, you know, suffer any uh, consequences. Um, And also the way in which both communities reacted afterwards, in which they sort of banded together to protect the perpetrators and to try and further isolate the victim. And I I had seen similar cases here 
um, in Ireland, this was particularly, you know, everyone knows the case in Listole, um, in which um, after the man was convicted of sexually assaulting uh, the, this woman, that, you know, 50 men lined up outside the court case, including the local priest, to shake his hand. And I suppose, it, you know, there was, I think it was just an accumulation of all those um, factors. And then Slain Girl happened, and even though obviously that isn't a rape case, um, I was at a party after it, a 21st birthday party. I was like the oldest person there, it was so depressing. <laughs> um, and um, I was talking to this group of 21 year, 21 year old boys, like the sexual predator that I am, and um, <laughs> joking. Um, and we were just talking about that case and they, you know, I was just sort of bringing up the point, why is it always, you know, slain girl? Why is it not slain boys? And their reaction was just so interesting to me because they were like, you know, she was a dirty slut. She was asking for it. She was on her knees. What did she expect? And I I kept saying, you know, if this was your sister, like if this was your sister, how would you feel about this? You know, that she was just being completely vilified by the press. And one of them turned to me and he just said, if that was my sister, I would never speak to her ever again. I would just be so disgusted by her. And I think it just really highlighted to me as was the disparity between we view female and male sexuality in this country. And that was just something, I think that just ties into patriarchal values and rape culture. And again, that was something that I just really felt like I needed to explore. So all of those ideas came together um, and asking for it was born out of that. And who do you hope will read the book? Um, everyone. <laughs> I want to buy a private jet and, a, and an island. Would it be important to you that, that young boys read Of course, no, yeah, no, no, yeah. absolutely. Um, no, it really is. And actually, it's been interesting to me because when I wrote Only Ever Yours, I think I did write that primarily for women, even though I was surprised by the amount of men who read it um, and really enjoyed it. Um, but with asking for it, it was very much like, I, have, I, I feel like this story needs to be read by everyone and not because you know, that I think I'm this amazing writer or anything like that, but I just felt like the topic that I was dealing with was so important and one that we need to talk about and that there needs to be this huge cultural shift around how we see and view women and um, survivors of sexual assault. Um, so yeah, I think it is really important for both young men and young women to read it because I suppose there's such a it's such a grey area like um, I've talked about this before but the sort of idea of dubious consent because I think a lot of the time we have this idea and I definitely did as a teenager um, and well into my 20s you know about what rape was and it was you know someone you didn't know the um, rapist you were dragged into an alleyway you know at knife point and I mean that does happen clearly and I, I can't even imagine how horrific that would be but I suppose those cases which are most common is that you do know the person that it's at a party where both of you've had too much to drink and where it just goes too far and I suppose that's where it's so difficult to define that as sexual assault or as rape and I think a lot of that stems from the fact that people young men and young women don't understand what consent really means. So you spoke to uh, survivors of rape and people who mm. work with them as part of the research for the book. Um, how did what they say influence your creation of Emma? Um, not very much. From the very beginning, I knew that I wanted Emma to be sort of difficult. Um, and I mean, I get this a lot where people say, she's such a bitch and then they go is she based on you <laughs> thanks also I'm delighted that you think I was the most beautiful girl in my school but no um, she's not based on me uh yeah I, I wanted her to be slightly you know not that I, I don't really think she's a bitch I think that she's 
to me, she feels like the most authentic um, character I've ever created because she's very real and she's she's very confused and she isn't the most likable, um, I suppose. But I wanted to get away from that idea of that we can only feel sympathy for a victim if they sort of conform to our idea of what a victim should be, you know? Um, so I mean, that is actually one of the very clever aspects of the narrative is how Emma... She almost does everything that girls and women are told they shouldn't do mm-hmm. uh, if they want to both avoid rape and then also get justice. But it's yet, yeah, despite all that, it's undeniable at the end of the book that you know a violent crime has taken place and an injustice has taken place. Yeah. Is that is that the main point that you wanted to make with, with asking for it? That the the whole way our culture talks about rape is, yeah. is skewed in this horribly misogynistic. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't matter if you've been drinking. It doesn't matter if you've had hundreds of sexual partners before. It doesn't matter if you're a sex worker. It doesn't matter if it's your husband or your boyfriend. It doesn't matter if you're wearing revealing clothes. It's not your fault if you get raped. Rape is only ever the fault of the rapist. And I think that's something that just needs to be drilled into people because there's still... I mean, I was listening to the Niall Boylan show, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks after my book had been released. And in the book, there's this scene where she's listening to a, a radio show called The Ned O'Dwyer Show. And they're um, call, not based on Niall Boylan. Um, and they're calling in and they're basically just like tearing apart her character while she has to listen to it. And I was in a shop while the Niall Boylan show was playing and there was people calling in and it was honestly like listening to two actors um, perform that scene. Like the language they used was the exact same. It was, you know, she was wearing a short skirt and what did she expect? And she was asking for it. And it was really, it was really terrifying. I was like, yeah, this is still so prevalent. This is really something that we do need to change. I would, I'd like to avoid, if, I, if we can, uh, totally spelling out the ending to the book in, in case uh, some listeners haven't read it yet. But there is an author's afterward that you've you've put in at the end where you say we need to talk about rape, we need to talk about consent, and we need to talk about victim blaming. Are you heartened by the response to the book so far? Do you get the sense that it's helping shift attitudes, you know, where the attitudes need to be shifted? Yeah, I mean, it was my editor's idea, actually, to include an afterward. I think she just felt that she... Because, again, I don't want to give away the ending, but she wanted me just to sort of explain the reasons why I chose um, to end it in the way that I did. And, I mean, I have been really... I think I was... I was preparing myself for a backlash because I feel like rape is one of these subjects that people just get incredibly defensive about. And my dad even said that when he read it, he was like, you know... Because he was the first person to read it at home. My mom gets really nervous. She's so funny. Um, And um, he was the first person to read it and... He came in and after the sort of general comments about uh, mistakes I had made about GAA, it was like, (laughs) Louise, now, the selector would not be part of the panel. I mean, like, what are you doing? And also, a friendly would never have occurred at the time of year of what you've said. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) So after all of that was done, um, he was like, uh, he was like, it's a really powerful novel, but he said, you are going to push people's buttons with this because he said there's going to be people reading this and there's going to be young men who've realised that they've raped someone and there's going to be young women realising that they've been raped and people do not want to realise that. And I was like, okay. And he said, just, you know, be prepared. He said, it's a really important book. You know, you've put this out there, you know, just kind of, just be prepared. So I think I was sort of bracing myself for a little bit of that, but so far it's been incredibly positive. Um, like overwhelmingly so um, and you know I'm getting emails and in the same way that when I wrote Only Ever Yours 
from the very start there was emails and letters coming through from girls with eating disorders and with body image issues um, and just general sort of you know depression and anxiety and with this book it's been the same except that it's letters from just I mean so many just it's it's actually frightening when I see the amount of letters that are coming in from people who've been raped or who've been sexually assaulted or um, because I think it just really shows that this isn't rare um, and because I think sometimes women are so afraid to share their stories because we're shamed into feeling that because we've been sexually assaulted that it's our fault in some way because we've been shamed into keeping being kept silent we're not sharing our stories so that we think that maybe we're the only ones that this has happened to so the more that I hear these stories and sometimes from people that I've been friends with for years and just didn't never felt like they could share that until I wrote this book it just, I think, makes me realise that this is sort of an epidemic. So, I'd like to invite you now, if you can, maybe to read a short extract yeah, sure. from Asking First. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from... Uh, it's um, Emma's obviously the main character, and she's gone to a party um, with her friends, um, Ali and Jamie and um, Maggie. And uh, this is just... Um, Ali has sort of left her and um, Jamie alone in the bathroom. I bolt the door after Ali and sit on the edge of the bathtub. She had the presence of mind to tie Jamie's hair into a ponytail, so at least I don't have to hold it back. I check my phone, sending Maggie a Snapchat, taking a selfie and posting it on Instagram, snorting when Matt Reynolds comments on the photo asking for a tit pic. After one violent retch that sounds like it might burst the lining of her stomach, Jamie wipes her mouth then gets to her feet unsteadily, holding on to the toilet for balance. Do you need help? She bends over the sink, splashing her face with water. Standing up straight, she looks at me in the mirror. Her face is blotchy, her eyeliner smeared halfway down her cheeks. What do you care? Jamie, you said it would be better. Jamie, I... It's not better, Emma. It's not better. Her breath is rasping in her throat. You said, you said. She can barely get the words out through her tears. She looks such a mess. And there must be something wrong with me because I know I should feel sorry for her. But all I feel is disgust. Look at yourself, I want to tell her. You're ruining your makeup. Do you even care? I tried to shush her, telling her to come on, Jay. Like, you need to calm down. This isn't the right place for this. But she ignores me, sitting on the toilet seat, her head in between her knees. So all I can hear through her wails is, you said, you said that if I, Dylan, you told me to. Come on, Jamie, stop it. But you told me it's happened to loads of people. It happens all the time. You wake up the next morning and you regret it or you don't remember what happened exactly, but it's easier just not to make a fuss. But that's not how it happened. She stares up at me. I told you what happened. But I wasn't there with you, was I? How do I know what really happened? But I told you. I didn't want... I didn't want to. You didn't say no. I crouched down in front of her, 
placing my hands on her shoulders. You told me you didn't say no. But she shrugs my hands off her and looks at me with such despair that my skin crawls. I didn't say yes either. A phone call last Halloween. Jamie. I look at the screen in surprise. Jamie never calls me. Do you want to go to Dylan's party? Maggie had hockey training and Ali was in the Bahamas. Just the two of us. It was never just the two of us. We were too competitive for that. Always needing one of the other girls there to act as a buffer. Drinking. Another shot. Another one. Another one. Jamie in her Sailor Moon costume and getting a lot of attention. I didn't like that. I stroked her hair, kissed her, my tongue in her mouth, the boys crow crowing. Her skin was so soft against mine. She fell and I laughed. Zach's hands on my waist then, replacing hers, hot breath on my neck, and then we were kissing and folding onto a bed and clothes were coming off. The next morning, too many missed calls. Come to my house, her trembling voice message said. Keying in the passcode at the reinforced gates to Jamie's home, her mother calling me a bad influence, Jamie sitting on the bed, crying and crying and crying. I felt uncomfortable. I felt weirdly excited by the drama. Be careful, I warned her. Like, Dylan's a dick, but he isn't that. He wouldn't do that. You can't just say stuff like that. When you say that word, you can't take it back. And she kept asking, what will I do? What will I do? What will I do now? What am I going to do? It would change everything. And I didn't want anything to change. Let's just pretend it didn't happen, I told her. It's easier that way. Easier for you, I mean. Thank you very much, Louise. And that's from the very tense first half of the book where we know something is going to happen to Emma just because it's on the blurb, but yeah. <laughs> she isn't Spoiler. exactly very um, sympathetic to her friend who has, yeah. also, who has clearly gone through uh, her own yeah. incident. Um, I think that was, I mean, I grew up in a very small town and I remember we used to talk about, we used to talk about this because there had been cases you know, where like friends had fallen asleep at parties and woken up and some guy was having sex with them. And we talked about it afterwards and it was just, it's not worth the hassle. Like absolutely over and over again, it's just not worth the hassle. It's too small of a town. You know, this person throws really good parties and we won't be able to go to any of them if you, I mean, that's how shallow it got, but that's where, and I think that's what it's like growing up in that kind of very small community. It's like you would always be that person um, and if for the rest of your life, you'd sort of be, I think, tired with that, um, with that label. So definitely a lot of things happened um, as a teenager that weren't right and that, sh that should have been reported or that should have, you know, that we should have done something. But it just, it just didn't, it just didn't seem, which sounds so horrific now, but it just didn't seem worth the trouble. We're just going to pause for a moment to tell you about our new sponsors, Squarespace. 
If you're looking to build a site that's professionally designed, regardless of your skill level and with no coding required, then Squarespace has intuitive and easy to use tools. Squarespace, which has its European operations and customer service office here in Dublin, has trusted technology that will power your site, giving it security and stability. To start your free trial site today and with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com using the code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace Build It Beautiful. Sarah Gilmartin, um, you reviewed Asking for It for the Irish Times and you wrote that it was, it was arguably more chilling than the... Uh, only ever yours, which is uh, Louise's debut, which, is, as you said, is set in a completely uh, dystopian world. But this is the real Ireland, uh, and it's presented in, in painstaking detail, you wrote. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that and your response to the book? Yeah, absolutely. So for people who haven't read Only Ever Yours, it's set in kind of a dystopian school of horrors where teenage girls, are, or around the teenage age, they're groomed uh, to become... Uh, different roles for men and then the men come in at the end and they pick them and they make them into different roles so I found a good few similarities between the two books and probably the top one which Louise has been talking about already this evening is uh, that women are that first of all that men hold the power and that women hold the responsibility or the shame and that they're held to a higher moral standard mm. than men are and in Only Ever Yours, it's quite scary and it's quite obvious. But I think it's scarier in the real world or the fictional real world of Balanatum because it's a world that we all recognise. And it's a world that's supposed to be equal or a different type of society. We've moved on from 30 years or 40 years. But actually, you see through the details in the book that it's not, I think. Um, were you conscious of that yourself, Louise, that it would uh, really, I suppose, unnerve people uh, to read about this community? Um, yeah, and I suppose sometimes with dystopian fiction, it's easy to sort of just say, well, that's not the real world and, you know, that doesn't really bear any relevance to my life. But I think with um, asking for it, it's maybe it's more difficult to do that because it does, it is... I suppose very representative of what our society is like today um, and I think even after it was released and there was just a, a few cases in Dublin alone that made me think wow you know obviously the um, case with is it Marcus Hustafate I'm not sure if I'm not pronouncing that right where you know that he had um, raped his girlfriend while she was sleeping and sent those emails admitting to it and got a seven year suspended sentence uh, I was just like, right, okay. And then, you know, there was another case in Dublin of a man who was convicted of raping um, his partner's eight-year-old child. Um, and the, the his local community all wrote um, letters um, sort of, you know, talking about what a, a good person he was and his local GA team, you know, wanted to sort of give him a character reference even though he had been given this conviction. And that happened just this summer. So... Because, you know, there's always that feeling when you finish a novel, you're like, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's a bit far-fetched. And I was like, oh, God, it's not. It's definitely not. Do you know? Um, Sirka Hamilton, um, how did this book make you feel when you were reading it? Well, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating, really well-written novel, obviously. Um, but it's, it's quite uncomfortable to read. I mean, obviously, uh, the, the issue of rape and the scenes that are brought up. I found, certainly, as a parent reading it, uh, as a parent of very young children, and yet to face into the teenage years, um, you know... It's, yeah, it's, you're kind of reading it going, God, it's actually, you know, it's difficult, I think, for parents to get that balance right of, you know, when young women, are, are at that age of how to allow them a kind of freedom, a kind of sexual freedom um, yeah. to express themselves, but with also 
not scaremongering either and not saying don't be you know completely freaked out when you walk down the street um yeah. you know because there is this very shocking moment in it um where emma overhears her father say to the mother um you know how did you know what she wasn't like this and you yeah. know you're her mother you know for god's sake you know and you're kind of going yeah like as as a parent i'm not really sure i mean it's so difficult um to get that balance right what do you say to young women uh, and i suppose i would be curious to say to ask you i mean yeah. what do you think what would you be saying to young um, women? I mean, the thing is, I'm not interested um, in policing young people or mm-hmm. policing young women. I think that adolescence is a really important time for figuring out who you are as a person. And a huge part of that is exploring your sexuality and figuring out, you know, sort of what you're into on, on a sexual mm-hmm. level. And to be able to do that in a safe and healthy way in which that you're not feeling under pressure to perform in a hypersexual manner, but that you are just able to sort of explore that in a, in a natural way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, that is difficult because you're living in a society in which women are constantly objectified without our permission and you're bombarded with image, like really hypersexual images of women. And it, it sort of is this really odd dichotomy where young women are seem to be told that, you know, in order to be lovable I suppose in a way you need to act like in a really sexual manner and you need to look really sexy and you need to dress really you know sexually but you can't actually be a sexual human being that if they try and claim authority over their own sexuality Mm -hmm. that they're that they're sort of vilified or said you know you're just a slut um and it is it's really difficult um and I suppose we just need to be constantly like challenging that because as I said it's such an important time for both you know, for both young men and young women, I suppose, I mean, people are always asking me about, like, what do I think, um, what do I think, you know, like, the role that porn plays, and I do think that it plays a massive role, because, you know, I mean, I'm an adult, so, you know, I can afford to pay for, like, you know, porn that, like, celebrates female sexuality, or that is, you know, about female desire, or where that's sort of the central, um, you know, part of it, whereas I think that the pornography that's you know free and that's widely available and that what they're watching is it's quite misogynistic and it's there's it's it's quite violent like if you watch a lot of it that it's it's really just and it is very centered on sort of like what the men want and I think that's very damaging for both young women and young men because they're watching that and it's their first introduction to what sex might be like and they're not able like as a 13 year old woman I can you know look at that and say well that's not what real sex is like but if you're watching that at you know 12 or 13 you must be oh well, this is what sex must be like. This is what I must you know like model my sexual behavior on is this, and I think that's where I mean I've no idea like how we're going to sort of weed that out like stronger nanny programs on iPhones. I don't know. <laughs> Thank God I'm not a parent. <laughs> but I mean Emma's parents they are sort of literally unsympathetic characters. They show yeah. very little sympathy it seems towards her. Would you oh, agree I, with that? I or? always feel so sorry for them because I think they're just such a product of like growing up and uh, they're also such a small town um, you know where that and I could not my parents wouldn't be like that as I said if that had been me um, my mother would have hired a hitman. Like She was like we know people. I was like <laughs> <laughs> Jesus do you? Um, so uh, no but like I and I've actually had this conversation because it's been really interesting um, with this book, the reaction from people at home. And a really good friend of mine emailed me and she was like, that's exactly how my parents would have reacted. Um, she said they just would have been like, you know, please let's not just make a fuss. People will be talking just sort of easier to brush it under the carpet. And I actually feel, I still feel sympathy for her parents because they they love her. They really do, but they want, they're projecting 
all of their own desires and all of the, you know they, they're projecting onto her what like they want her to be a reflection of them not she can't just be her own person and I think it's really interesting to see that because I think with her mother there's such a tension there because her mother is very aware of how she sees her own sort of fading beauty and that she is quite jealous but also very proud that Emma is like really attractive so she sort of inf- reinforced this idea with Emma that a lot of her worth is very much correlated to how attractive she is. And I think her father as well is just very proud of, you know, the fact that she's very academic and that she's very presentable. And they want to present this idea of perfection to the community at large. And I think that when she, when this happens, that shatters that. And for people who are, I suppose, obsessed with keeping up with the appearances, that's incredibly difficult. So I do feel sorry for them as well. I also felt really sorry for the brother. I mean, I know. you know, and he seems I to be the only. Him. Yeah, I mean, he, he seems to be the only one who can really call it as it is. Like, you yeah. know, I mean, he's kind of outraged. He wants justice. He kind of sees really what he sh- he thinks should be done, and yeah. yet he's kind of um, you kind of worry about him going off now. How is he going to handle I know. all of this? You know, he's I know. kind of left with it on his Poor shoulders. Poor Brian too. and Connor. I feel like they're with just the two. Yeah. Um, I suppose the most sympathetic um, characters and in an interesting way I suppose they're the only two characters in the entire book that actually see Emma for who she is and still like her Um, because I think her parents want you know as I said have all these kind of ideals projected onto her and um, I think that she puts on a facade for everybody else I think she plays the role that she thinks that people want her to play Mm -hmm. Um, but Brian just there's just no shit there like they just you know have this really close relationship and actually I think the reason why she keeps pushing Connor away is because he makes her feel uncomfortable because she feels like she can't pretend with him and her whole life is based upon pretending um, as in the Stephenville case in the US, uh, technology and social media it plays a very interesting role mm-hmm. in the sense that it both provides the main evidence in the case, um, and it's also, but it's also used as a weapon against Emma in a way to, to further shame her or try to shame her. Yeah. Do you think, do companies like Facebook and other social media companies, do they have a greater responsibility to protect younger people? That's or, really interesting. It, would it even be possible for them to do so? That's really interesting. Um, I feel like, I mean, because I'm a huge, uh, like I love um, Twitter and I'm really active on it. Um, but I do think Twitter in particular um, seems to have real issues with protecting users. Um, I, I've just seen very recently um, Lindy West, who's this American um, writer, and she's just incredible. She's a feminist. You know, she's spoken about her experiences as a fat woman. And the abuse that she gets on Twitter is just... It's actually really frightening. Um, recently, she was um, writing, there was a, a hashtag on Twitter about shout your abortion, where women were sharing their experiences um, of terminating pregnancies. And she was speaking about hers. And I mean, the responses that she was getting, like one person said, uh, her father died a few years ago, and one person set up a fake Twitter account under his name and started tweeting her, you know, um, like, you know, why are you proud of killing my grandchild? And, I mean, just really vicious thing. And it's like Twitter doesn't seem to... And they keep saying they will. They keep coming out and saying, yeah, we know we need to protect users more, but we know we have the block button, but there just doesn't seem to be any sort of real ramifications for people who are using Twitter in order to, I suppose, spread hate speech. I mean, I always really hate when these conversations focus on, you know, how women should change their behaviour rather than how men should change theirs. But um, I suppose there is, uh, you know, a question of whether or not 
women should be supporting other women and girls should be supporting other girls. Do yeah. you, do you feel I that? mean, of course, I think that's really important. But I also think that, um, you know, women and girls have also been brought up in a patriarchal society. So it would not be surprising if they internalized a lot of those values, like none of us exist um, in a vacuum. So if I meet a woman and I'm like, wow, she's quite misogynistic, in a way that's not really that surprising to me. Um, but I suppose it's just about, you know, education. Um, and I know that myself, you know, I mean, I, I've identified as a feminist since I was 15, but I'd say it was only until maybe when I was 25, 26 that I really began to understand what that meant because I, you know, started reading more literature. And, and to be fair, like the internet and social media, whatever you'll say about the negative aspects about it, you know, the dissemination of feminist literature and ideas through social media you know, it is much easier. Like, I, I have access to ideas now that I wouldn't have had at 14 or 15. So I think, that, you know, that's really important. Sarah, how did you feel about the presentation of female characters in Asking For It? The issue of female friendship, I thought, was really interesting in it, and not just among the teenagers. So you have four different, four very different kind of teenagers. Uh, you've got one girl who's very rich, you've got Emma, who's very beautiful, and then you've got Maggie, who I think is kind of more grounded. She yeah. kind of seems to bring everyone together and then Jamie who is I suppose Emma's rival in a way and you see the dynamic between them and there's a huge element of competition and jealousy and particularly from Emma to her friends so when Ali has things you know she steals from her Mm -hmm. Uh, she sees things that she wants but it's not just among the teenagers I thought what was quite clever in the book as well was the mother characters it's among them too this kind of aura of one-upmanship so there's a cake competition and Emma's mother uh, is really good at making cakes or she's really jealous of Ali's mother for being so beautiful yeah that kind of thing well I suppose that's the whole point is that like you know girls are not inherently bitchy you know this sort of idea that you know gender is all about like you know biological sort of determinism I I really don't believe that I think that um, gender is really a social construct so the idea that girls are just born with this bitchy gene is just nonsense and it is completely how we've been I suppose socialized and a huge part of that is I suppose role you know like what kind of role models you've had and I think what's interesting as you just said there about Maggie because she's probably the most grounded character is that her mother is a therapist um, and is you know quite a I mean she's not really um, in the novel but you know that from what the idea that I'd had of her that she was a very supportive that she would have had very supportive female friendships so that's what Maggie would have had as a role model which the other girls wouldn't have had and definitely Emma like her mother is very competitive and is that sort of very underhand uh, you know passive aggressive not really saying anything but you know saying everything at the same time Um, and yeah so I think it's as a teenager I would have really bought into that idea that girls were bitchy and that girls were competitive and that and then it's amazing as I get older like how important female friendship has become to me and how incredibly supportive I find other women um, and how just important that is in my life. Um, So I think it's about sort of breaking away from that, you know, like and just not, I suppose, buying into it. The relationship between Emma and her mother I found really interesting as well. Like right from the beginning, I think the opening scene is it's set or she's talking about being in front of a vanity um, her yeah. mo- in front of a mirror and her mother's commenting her uh, commenting on her looks and telling her how beautiful she is 
And then later on, after the attack, when everything kind of falls apart, the mother almost, you know, it's it's almost like it's happened to her, yeah. As opposed to it's happened to her daughter, yeah. And there's a great line in the book: um, another woman in a, in the town has had a breakdown, and Emma's mother says, "Well, I would love the luxury yeah. of nervous <laughs> breakdown." <laughs> and I think it's so just Irish, such an Irish thing <laughs> to say. Um, I, I thought it was great, but that dynamic is really yeah. interesting between them. Um, I mean, I'm really close with my mom, um, but you know, I suppose I've seen it with loads of other people that that the mother daughter dynamic is can be a very sort of a contentious one um because even you know despite the fact that I'm as I said very close with my mother and I love her and she's this amazing woman for years my greatest fear was turning into her and like honestly I've no I know and I've said this to her and I've no idea why because she's this really attractive incredible woman like she's the warmest person that I know she's one of the best people that I've ever met but I think it's just that fear of just not being able to control your own destiny that you've no control over it, that it's just going to happen automatically. Um, and I don't know what that is. I, I have no idea like where that comes from. And I've seen it just time and time again with, you know, with other friends talking about their relationships with their mothers. Um, and I suppose I wanted to explore that because... You know, I remember when I was in the US and um, there was a woman that I was working with that was pregnant and another colleague said, you know, it must be a boy because girls, when when women are pregnant with girls, they always look terrible because girls steal their mother's beauty. <laughs> and I honestly was so, and I put that in only every yours, because I remember going, Jesus, we've started already. <laughs> you know, it's like comp, comp, competing already. And I suppose, um, and I again, I, I've never experienced that with my m- mom, um, but I've... I've heard and I've seen it with other people where, especially I think if maybe their mothers were particularly beautiful or when they were younger or very much into how they looked, feeling slightly competitive um, as they get older and maybe feel like their own beauty is becoming diminished and especially in a culture which I think older women maybe become slightly more invisible Mm -hmm. um, and that maybe jealousy when they see their own beauty being replicated in their daughter as well as a pride which I think is very much sort of integral to Emma and Nora's relationship. Zerika how did you feel about the envy and the jealousy between the girls in the book? Between the girls, yeah. I mean, it's it's uncomfortable as well. I mean, just even talking about the the, the the mother-daughter relationship, just to get back to that for a second, I find myself going, God, it's so disappointing, though. I just wish the mother would just get up and just I take know. by the hand and just, you know, fight a little bit, you know, know what I mean? And you're so, you know what I mean? I think Emma feels that also, too, yeah. you know what I mean? She's kind of disappointed by her. Um, she does I, try, though. She does try, she but tries it's... her best. You but... can't help wondering, does, you know, the mother has her own story, too. Uh, you know, what's in there? She does fall apart really she's just drinking you wonder maybe there's something else going on there too maybe she has her own uh, experiences from the past as well Um, but with regards to her friends um, you do I I kind of I felt for them too also because this is an ordeal that they've also gone through you kind of wonder now like you often hear when this um, awful things happen in different schools you hear about the counsellors coming in and you kind of wonder god all these children or like youngsters uh, are kind of looking at these horrific images you know what I mean how did they how were they all handling it on their own terms um, as kind of bystanders um, and you know a few of them did try afterwards yeah. to get in touch and reach out to her but she just wasn't able for it you yeah. know um, so it was yeah it, there is a sense of guilt there isn't mm. there I think that's very well conveyed absolutely and like how much I mean you know people say you know look out for each other when you go out you know yeah. stick together don't let, let don't walk home alone I mean I'm sure lots of her friends were feeling and what was my role I mean absolutely. there probably was guilt there and too, then, but you know? I, I think it's that thing of living in a small town again where people just kind of want to get on with it 
um, because it's very hard to keep those grudges. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Even if it's a friend of a friend and it's happened, it's it's nearly impossible. Do you know, like years pass and people kind of forget and they get on with their own lives and it's just it's and it's yeah it's interesting it always seems to be the sort of tag or the that label stays with the girl more than the from, from what I've seen anyway more than from the the guy that has been accused I mean I just wanted to mention something that the young girl in the Maryville uh, Missouri case mm-hmm. said after that case um, reached a kind of conclusion she said to the press um, to all those who supported me I promise that what happened on January 8th, 2012 will not define me forever. Now, Louise, obviously asking for it ends at a particular point in the narrative, but do you have a sense of how Emma's life continues after that time? And if so, do you get the sense that the the sexual assault, the rape, will define her forever, even in in her own eyes? Um, I think it's really hard to go through an experience like that and not have it change you. You know, I think you are, I mean, in the same way that if, you know, you have a loss or a death of a family member or, you know, some sort of very traumatic event, I mean, it is just impossible just to be the same person. I mean, I, from what I could see from talking to survivors of sexual assault and of rape, the way that people reacted was very differently. You know, um, I was speaking to a girl today, you know, a year on and she seems to be doing really well. Um, I have another very close friend three years on and I, like she's still sort of picking up the pieces. So I think it just depends on the person. Um, I, I mean, with Emma, I, I, I hope she does. I always had this thing that maybe, you know, in a few years that maybe herself and Connor would get together. But I was like, that's sort of wishful thinking on my behalf. Um, and also, I suppose the, the big problem is that if this had happened, if this case had happened 15 or 20 years ago, she could have just moved on she could have just moved to Belfast or she could have moved to London um, and she could have put it behind her and never gone back home to Ballinatoom and just sort of left it behind. But I think, you know, things on the internet last forever. And I remember I wrote an article on um, revenge porn and Hunter Moore, who is this really horrific person who created this website called Up All Night in the um, US, which was a site where men could um, share... Uh, photos of their ex-girlfriends, naked photos and naked videos um, after they had um, broken up. And, I mean, it was awful. There was people who had, like, committed suicide and, pe- you know, that their mothers confronted Hunter Moore and he was like, well, you know, they shouldn't have taken those photos in the first place. I mean, just he's a terrible human being. Um, and there was a one particular case where this girl, her mother was, I think there was an incredibly affluent family and the mother was a really high-powered solicitor and I think the father was like in the CIA or something. So they were like, we are going to get this taken down. And it was impossible. They just said like every time they did it, you know, some sort of screenshot or something just kept popping up. And it's like if you, if at that level even, if you're finding it that difficult to, I suppose, cleanse it, um, then... I, I just, I suppose, it, th- those sort of, that, those pictures will be there forever, I think, for Emma. Can I ask you a little bit about your writing style? Um, because it seems to me that it's a very good marriage of form and content in this book, in the way that you uh, detail Emma's anxieties in the run-up to, to I suppose, the party, uh, but also then how her mind kind of is trapped in this terrible spiral after the trauma that she suffers um, you know, what kind of choices did you, choices did you make? Did you um, when you were writing the, that part of the book? 
Um, I wanted there to be like a really clear cut difference between the first half and the second half, even just in the style, like in you know, the first half, I felt it was much more sort of conversational nearly and just, you know, really easy to read. And then I wanted the second half to be very cold and for the sentences to be quite short um, and just nearly like kind of staccato. So you have that sense of just, I suppose, sort of, of, of how much her life has changed. Um, and yeah, it's funny. Um, yeah, so I, I think, as I said, and even just different different choices that I made were in the first, you know, in the second half, she refers to her, um, she keeps saying my mother or my father as opposed to like mom and dad. It's a real, I think, much more sense of, it's much more formal um, because I think that she's really detached. I think that um, in order to survive, which is very common, I think she's, she's slightly dissociated um, from herself, from her body, from her surroundings. So there's that real sense of nearly kind of like a clinical precision, I think, in the second half, which, was, which isn't evident in the first. And was it draining to write? Yes. Um, I was under quite a bit of pressure because I suppose I had just, um, I had signed a two-book deal and I, you know, I obviously had to get this novel in, but I think it was May 2014, for the first draft of it anyway. Um, so I wrote the first draft in six months and it was, it was incredible. I mean, and that's, that's on me as well, because I think I'm quite, you know, I wanted to be an actress um, as a teenager. And I suppose the way that I approach writing is quite similar to that in that I, I sort of create this entire character, you know, and then try and inhabit them for as long as I'm writing it, which as you can imagine, my parents are delighted with, They're like, you're 30, like, stop it. And I must be born, I hate you. Um, and so I really take it on. And I think that was fine for the first half. I was kind of just really bratty, but definitely what I was writing in the second half, um, I felt really anxious, really, I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to see people. I was having really bad nightmares. And I, you know what? That's on me because I think like loads of writers deal with these sort of topics and they you know write them beautifully, um, and they're able to keep some sort of creative distance. Um, so it'll be interesting with my next novel because I suppose the first two were written in a very sort of obsessive manner, and I was writing them in complete isolation. They were both finished before Only Ever Yours came out. So there was no expectations. There was no sort of like weight of anyone else's voices. So it'll be interesting now, I think, with the third book to try and do it, I suppose, in a way that is more sustainable. Because if I want to keep, if I want to keep writing as a career, I'm not going to be able to do that sort of real obsessive, you know, not least of all, because I don't, like for the first two, I was like, I'm not drinking and I'm not having sex. Now, that's fine until I meet, like, imagine if I'm, like, married. I'm like, it'll be six months, dear. Uh, we'll talk then, okay? So. And then there's the second draft. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that was actually going to be the last question from, from me. Um, we, we just heard news this week that you've signed another deal with Quercus to write two more books. Mm -hmm. And this time, I'm, I'm not sure how much, you know, this makes a difference, but the books will be on the adult imprint yeah. of Quercus. Uh, can, you, can, can you tell us something about about the next book yeah sure I mean it's it's interesting I suppose um I I really want to be able to write both um so I I don't it, it's just I could never see myself I suppose exclusively only writing um YA novels for the rest of my life but and by the same token I I can't see that I'll never write them again um but also I I don't see how my writing style is going to be all that different I mean the whole point I think of both novels and the difficulty even with selling them initially to a publisher was that they sort of didn't comfortably sit in either category. They kind of straddled both a bit, I think. 
Um, and so, yeah, so I, as I said, and when I was writing Only Every Yours, I, wasn't, I didn't set out to write um, a novel for young adults. I set out to write the story that, I, you know, that had come to me. And I think good writing is good writing. It should just sort of transcend um, th that idea of, you know, this is only for teenagers or this is only for adults. So... Okay, well, uh, I must say I'm very excited to see and, and read whatever it is that you do so next. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> is it, it's January, is, it that, is that when you're going to sit, yeah, sit down? Yeah, January. That's, That's when I you have start. To, yeah, I have to go home. Dublin Not has been very bad for my liver and my bank balance. <laughs> so I have to go home um, in a, a January and start writing again in the wilds of West Cork. So. Okay, well, thank you very much to everybody thank for coming you. to this live Irish Times podcast event and to the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. My thanks also to Irish Times Assistant Literary Editor Martin Doyle, to sound engineer JJ Vernon, to panellists Sarah Gilmartin and Sirka Hamilton, and a special thanks, of course, to one of Ireland's most talented young writers for discussing her work with us tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Louise O'Neill.